So the last episode, I told you about wolves and how they're a keystone species, and we touched briefly on another keystone species, the beaver. Now, when it comes to changing the landscape, beavers are second only to humans. And when it comes to hunting things almost into extinction, humans, well, we're second to none. Wolves were persecuted because they were seen as a threat to livestock. Beavers, on the other hand, were persecuted because they made good hats. That's right, the beaver almost went extinct for the sake of fashion. Heck, beaver even played a role in sparking the Revolutionary War. And I'm also going to tell you about that one time when we threw some beavers out of an airplane. So let's talk about the American beaver, Latin name Castor canadensis, and how they create habitat for many other animals. But as we've started to understand more and more, they're much more valuable to us on the landscape than they are as hats. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. The beaver is the largest rodent in North America, averaging between 30 and 60 pounds, and the second largest rodent in the world. In case you ever need to know to answer a trivia question, the largest rodent in the world is the capybara. You're welcome. Beavers are generally nocturnal, and in the wild they live on average between 10 and 15 years. Now there's two other rodents that are sometimes confused with beaver, the muskrat and the nutria. Muskrat are native to North America, but are much smaller than beavers. Muskrats only average about two to four pounds, so less than a typical house cat. And they have a long, thin, scaly tail that's flattened vertically. Muskrats swim using their partially webbed hind feet and that tail to propel them through the water. Muskrat lodges sort of look like beaver lodges, but smaller. And unlike the beaver that uses a lot of woody material and a lot of mud to build a lodge, a muskrat lodge is made of plant material like reeds and cattails with very little mud. Nutria, on the other hand, are native to South America, and they're actually considered invasive in North America. Size-wise, they fall between the muskrat and the beaver, averaging about 12 pounds, and they have a round tail like a possum's. Nutria were originally brought to Louisiana in 1889 to be farmed for their fur, but the Nutria fur trade collapsed in the 1930s. Between intentional releases into the wild by Nutria farmers in the 30s and 40s, and a 1940 hurricane that allowed many to escape into the wild, Nutria quickly populated coastal marshes, inland swamps, and other wetland areas. They just as quickly became pests. They destroy aquatic vegetation and marshes, which lead to erosion of riverbanks, and they displace native animals. They can also damage irrigation systems and will even chew through tires and wooden house paneling. From Louisiana, they spread through the southern United States and can now be found in 20 states. In the east, they come as far north as Chesapeake Bay, and in the west, they can be found in California, Oregon, and all the way up into Washington. But I digress. You came here to learn about beavers. Now, beavers, of course, are also a wetland specialist. Because they live much of their life in the water, they've evolved a number of adaptations, both physical and behavioral, to maximize the benefits of the semi-aquatic lifestyle. Beavers have small eyes and not very good eyesight, but they have a set of transparent eyelids that close when they're swimming so they can see underwater. This also protects the eyes from branches and other debris. 
Determining the sex of a beaver can be difficult unless the female is lactating, because their reproductive organs are internal, which, when you think about it, makes a lot of sense for an animal that swims around in a lot of underwater branches and things. Having dangly bits that could get caught on something, well, you can imagine how that might end poorly. Now, I've read that experts can tell the difference between the sexes by smelling the secretions from the anal glands, that females smell like old cheese and males like motor oil. I'm just going to leave that one to the experts and take their word for it. Beavers are awkward on land, but quite graceful in the water. Unlike muskrats, which have only partially webbed hind feet, beaver have fully webbed hind feet. Like a scuba diver wearing flippers, these feet propel the beaver through the water at speeds up to six miles an hour, with their tail acting as a rudder. And that brings us to the two most obvious physical traits of the beaver, the ones we associate with them the most, the tail and the teeth. The flat tail of the beaver has many uses. However, contrary to popular belief or what you may have seen in cartoons, they do not use it to plaster mud on their dams and lodges. I already mentioned that they use it like a rudder to steer when swimming. They also use it to prop themselves up when sitting or as leverage when carrying large branches. But wait, there's more! Their tail is used to regulate their body temperature and to store fat to help get through the winter. Beaver don't hibernate, so it's more like supplementary supplies. If you've encountered a beaver in the wild, you may be familiar with one more use of their tail, as an alarm call. When a swimming beaver is startled or frightened, they will dive while forcefully slapping their tail on the surface of the water. This is audible for a considerable distance both above and below the water and serves as a warning to other beaver in the area, not to mention startling a possible predator. Once the alarm is sounded, nearby beaver will dive also, and since beaver can hold their breath for up to 15 minutes, they're hoping whatever threat moves on before they come up for air. Like all rodents, beaver have four chisel-like incisors that grow continuously throughout their life. These teeth are usually orange on the front, and this is because the front enamel of the teeth is high in iron. The back of the teeth is composed of a much softer dentin. The end result is that the back of the teeth wear down quicker than the front, which makes them self-sharpening. Beavers also have a flap behind their front teeth, what amounts to a second set of lips. This allows the beaver to chew wood underwater or carry branches while swimming without drowning. On a trail I ride regularly around here, there's a large cottonwood tree, probably three feet or more in diameter, that has obviously been chewed on by beaver. Somebody once remarked that there was no way the beaver was going to chew through that entire tree, but the reality is that it probably didn't intend to. Beaver don't just cut down trees to make dams and lodges. Beavers are herbivores. They eat vegetation. But some of their favorite foods are the inner bark of willows, aspens, and poplar trees. In the case of this large cottonwood, I have no doubt that the local beavers were just using it as a regular spot to get a bite to eat. But there are two closely related physical traits of beavers that are the main reason they were driven to the brink of extinction by humans. Their fur and a substance called castorium. Beaver have two layers of fur. Short, fine hairs close to the body help retain warmth, and longer hairs on top provide waterproofing. Adding to that waterproofing is castorium. Castorium is a thick, oily substance that is secreted by glands on the beaver's abdomen. Beavers will comb castorium through their fur on a regular basis to maintain that waterproofing, in addition to using it to scent mark their territory. 
That's all I'll say for now. I'll tell you more about why beaver fur and castorium were so sought after shortly. So aside from a big tail and buck teeth, the other things that beavers are known for is their building prowess. Dams and lodges are a beaver's specialty. The primary purpose of a beaver dam is to provide an area of still water that provides a place for a lodge and swim-up access to preferred food sources. Beavers will even dig channels in shallower water to provide for better swimming. That said, not all beavers will build a dam or even a lodge. If the water is deep enough, three to four feet at minimum, and there's access to food, a dam may not be needed, and sometimes a beaver may dig a den into the bank instead of building a lodge. So what makes a beaver build a dam? One of the primary triggers for dam building is the sound of running water. You hear this, But the beaver hears this. Biologists have tested this theory by playing the recorded sound of running water near a beaver colony. The beavers built a dam over the top of the recording device until they could no longer hear it. When it comes to this feat of engineering, beaver know what they're doing. Construction begins by diverting the stream to lessen the water's flow pressure. Branches and logs are then driven into the mud of the stream bed to form a base. Next, sticks, bark, rocks, mud, grass, leaves, masses of plants, and anything else that's available are used to build the superstructure. In 2006, two men found a beaver dam that even had a prosthetic leg in it. Beaver dams average about 6 feet tall, 4 feet thick, and 20 feet long, and the average pond depth behind the dam is 4 to 6 feet. The largest beaver dam ever found is located in Wood Buffalo National Park in Alberta, Canada. This gigantic dam was actually first spotted on Google Earth in 2007 and is over half a mile long. It was formed by many, many smaller dams that eventually merged together to form one huge one and is over 25 years old. Lodges are built using the same material as the dam, primarily branches and mud. Lots of mud. Beavers dig out their dens and underwater entrances after they finished building the dam and lodge structures. Having the entrance underwater makes entry nearly impossible for any other animal, although muskrats have been seen living inside beaver lodges alongside the beavers who made them. Maybe muskrats are like dogs for beaver? Only a small amount of the lodge is actually used as a living area. There are typically two dens inside the lodge, one for drying off after exiting the water, and another drier one in which the family lives. Late each autumn, the beavers will cover the lodge with fresh mud, which freezes when the temperatures drop, becoming hard as concrete. This helps prevent wolves, wolverines, or other predators from penetrating the lodge when frozen water gives them easy access. In addition, it helps insulate the lodge. Researchers in Minnesota discovered that the temperature inside the lodge stays several degrees above freezing, even when outside temps are well below zero. Since beaver don't hibernate, they cache food for the winter by jamming branches of trees like aspen, alder, and willow in the mud at the bottom of the pond. This way they still have access to food even if their pond is completely frozen over. Beaver are monogamous and mate for life, although if one of the pair die, the remaining beaver may look for a new mate. 
The makeup of a beaver colony is similar to that of a wolf or coyote pack, a mated male and female and their kits. But notice that we don't refer to the parents as the alpha male and female beaver like we do with wolves and coyotes. As you've probably picked up, a group of beavers is known as a colony and generally consists of six to eight individuals. The parents, the current year's kits, and the previous year's kits. Kits usually disperse around the age of two. Both parents take part in raising the kits, and older kits help out too. Older kits help out with building dams and lodges and caching food, learning how to do these tasks by copying their parents. Prior to the 1600s, there were approximately 60 million beaver in North America. They ranged throughout the United States and Canada. Now, in the care of 60 million beaver, the landscape looked vastly different than it does today. David Thompson, a surveyor who arrived in Hudson Bay in 1784, wrote that North America above the 40th parallel may be said to have been in possession of two distinct races of beings, man and the beaver. And on July 18, 1805, somewhere near the Three Forks of the Missouri River in Montana, Meriwether Lewis of Lewis and Clark wrote in his journal, quote, Captain Clark saw a number of beaver dams seceding each other in close order and extending as far up those streams as he could discover in their course towards the mountains. So try to imagine places like Nevada and Utah and even western Nebraska having much, much more water on the landscape. Just like with wolves, arriving European settlers were familiar with the beaver, but unlike wolves, they had a much more positive opinion of them. So what exactly made the beaver so valuable and sought after? First, but not necessarily foremost, was castorium. You remember, that thick, oily substance the beaver uses to waterproof its fur? Castorium, and again, I'm taking the expert's word for it, has a smell and a taste that's similar to vanilla, raspberry, or strawberry. It was used as an ingredient in perfume and to enhance artificial vanilla flavoring in a variety of foods. The FDA considers it safe for human consumption as well as a natural flavor since it is derived from a natural source, although nowadays it's only rarely used, usually in higher-end artisanal foods. Castorium was also used medicinally. It was believed that it could treat everything from headaches to deafness to mental illness. Now, castorium is not the miracle cure-all that it was advertised to be, but it does have some medicinal qualities. Castorium is generally high in salicylic acid because this same compound is found in the bark of the beaver's favorite foods, aspen, poplars, and willows. Salicylic acid also happens to be the active ingredient in aspirin. So alleviating headaches and toothaches, sure, but deafness and mental illness, not so much. But castorium wasn't the main reason why beaver were in such high demand. Rather, it was the pelt of the beaver that was almost literally worth its weight in gold. And why was beaver fur so valued? One word, hats. But not furry hats with ear flaps like you might be picturing, but felt hats. Think more like top hats or those tri-cornered hats worn during the Revolutionary War, or the navy hats maybe you've seen in any movie set in Victorian times. From the mid-1500s until the mid-1800s, felt hats were the height of fashion. The most sought-after material for those hats was felt made from beaver fur. The felting process involves shaving the underhairs of the pelt, wetting them, agitating them, and pressing them into sheets of pliable fabric. 
Microscopic barbs in these hairs intertwine. Beaver fur is superior to other materials like wool or rabbit fur because of its waterproof characteristics and its larger barbs. When the first pilgrims arrived in America in 1620, the European beaver had been hunted to near extinction, all for the sake of hats. So to arrive in a land with 60 million beaver was akin to arriving in a bank vault full of free money. And it wasn't long before the French, English, Dutch, and Swedish were all competing for control of the pelt trade in New England. When the Dutch bought the island of Manhattan from the Lenape tribe in 1626, the real prize was not the land itself, but the over 7,000 beaver pelts that were sent back to Amsterdam. Colonists used beaver pelts to pay off their debts for their passage to the New World. So a little-known fact, the Revolutionary War was not just about attacks on tea, but was partially ignited by England's refusal to allow colonists to access beaver hunting grounds west of the Appalachian Mountains. Now, you've probably heard of the Hudson's Bay Company. The Hudson's Bay Company was incorporated in 1670, and their charter granted the company a monopoly on the fur trade in the region drained by all rivers and streams flowing into Hudson Bay in northern Canada. During its peak, the company controlled the fur trade throughout much of British-controlled North America. In the mid-1800s, with beaver numbers declining, they instituted protective measures and quotas in western Canada to stop this downward trend. But don't give them too much credit. This was just good business practice. No beaver means no profits. And it was not out of some concern for the beaver itself. To illustrate this point, at the same time they were protecting beaver in western Canada, they were planning to create a, quote, fur desert south and east of the Columbia River in Oregon to discourage rival traders. In a letter, one of the leaders of the company wrote, quote, the Snake River is a rich preserve of beaver, which for political reasons we shall endeavor to destroy as fast as possible, unquote. By the mid-1800s, only about 50 years after Lewis's description of beaver dams as far as the eye could see, beaver had become scarce in the lower 48 states. Now, as early as 1939, the state of Idaho began to recognize the value of beaver in stabilizing eroded areas and started trapping and relocating them. In 1941, the town of Salmon, Idaho, made headlines when five beavers stabilized the town's water supply and saved them from the expense of building a dam. And that, friends, brings us to the tale of the skydiving beavers. In 1948, people in the vicinity of McCall, Idaho, were having trouble with the local beavers. To be honest, the beaver were there first, and just doing what beaver do naturally, but the human population of the area was growing, and the beavers were disrupting farming and damaging irrigation systems and orchards. But thankfully, instead of killing the beaver, the Idaho Fish and Game Department wanted to relocate them to suitable habitat in remote areas. Getting to the desired areas, though, would have involved placing the beavers in boxes strapped to horses or donkeys and would have taken several days of travel in hot and dusty conditions, less than ideal for both the beavers and the animals carrying them. So another solution was formulated. Now this being right after World War II, surplus parachutes were easy to come by. The rangers built a box that could hold up to two beavers, could be dropped from an airplane attached to a parachute, and when it touched down, it would open to release its furry cargo. After several test drops involving weights, a beaver they named Geronimo became their live test pilot. 
According to the records, Geronimo eventually became so used to skydiving that he would climb back into the box after the test flights, ready to go again. For his contribution, Geronimo was one of the first beavers dropped into the wilderness, along with three young females. All in all, 76 beavers skydived into the Idaho wilderness. There was only one casualty. In one case, the linen lashings that kept the box together in midair broke, and the curious beaver managed to nose its way out and climb on top. It would have been okay if he had stayed put, but the panicked beaver jumped off the box about 75 feet above the ground. But overall, the flying beavers were incredibly successful. The following year, the team revisited their transplanted beavers and found that they had all built dams and lodges, bred, and stored food for the winter. Now, Idaho went through all this trouble because they had figured out that beavers are incredibly beneficial. Beaver dams, by their very nature, retain water on the landscape, water that would otherwise just run downstream and out of the watershed. They're associated with a nine-fold increase in open water area and increased stream flow in seasonally dry streams, those that would otherwise dry up. By storing water, they allow it to percolate into the ground, which raises the water table and increases infiltration into aquifers, a major source of drinking water. Beaver dams also decrease water temperature, which is beneficial to many species of fish and amphibians. Beaver dams help mitigate flooding and reduce erosion by slowing stream flows. They capture sediment and trap pollutants, which improves water quality and reduces the nutrient loading that causes dead zones. But it's not just humans that benefit from beavers. As I've said, beavers are a keystone species. Beaver ponds provide habitat for a myriad of other animals. Many amphibians, like frogs, toads, and salamanders, prefer beaver ponds for laying eggs because they have fewer fish that may eat their eggs. Waterfowl like ducks, geese, and trumpeter swans utilize beaver ponds, and studies have shown that owls, kingfishers, herons, egrets, and other birds were found in greater numbers where beavers were present. Flooding from beaver dams kills trees, but these dead trees benefit woodpeckers, which in turn create nesting sites for wood ducks, titmice, owls, and other cavity nesting birds. When it comes to trout and salmon, the presence of beaver dams has been shown to increase either the number of fish, their size, or both. Beaver dams are associated with a 52% increase in survival for steelhead trout. I remember reading someplace that when trying to reintroduce beaver into certain areas in Oregon, people were concerned that their dams would block trout and salmon from swimming upstream to spawn. Then someone pointed out two things. First, that the fish and the beaver had coexisted in these areas for thousands of years before humans came along, and second, that many of the rivers in question had hydroelectric dams with fish ladders, which were definitely not natural. In the end, studies showed that the fish had no problem navigating over and often through beaver dams. And then there are the mink, muskrat, moose, fox, raccoons, turtles, deer, wolves, bears, coyotes, the list goes on and on, who all benefit from the presence of beaver. The Voyager's Wolf Project, which I mentioned in the last episode, has a great video on their Facebook page that's a compilation of animals filmed over a year on a beaver dam. If you're on Facebook, I highly recommend that you like their page. They post some amazing videos of not just wolves, but many other animals like beavers that live in the same ecosystem. 
Another great organization is the Methow Beaver Project. Located on the Methow River in Washington State, the Methow Beaver Project's mission is storing water for the future, one beaver at a time. They try to help retain beavers on private land. There are ways to help control where the beavers build. If that fails, they trap the problematic beaver, then attempt to make a love connection, sort of like Tinder for beavers. Of course, if beavers use dating apps, we'd have to call it Timber. The reason for pairing up beavers is simple. If you take a single beaver, put it in the best beaver habitat in the world, it's not going to stay there. It's going to leave and go in search of a mate. But if you put a mated pair of beavers into suitable habitat, well, they're more likely to stay put and do some good where it's needed. Well, wild wanderers, that's all I have for you this week. If you're looking for some good reading regarding beavers, I highly recommend the book Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter by Ben Goldfarb, and Once They Were Hats, In Search of the Mighty Beaver by Francis Backhouse. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider supporting my work by becoming a patron. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. All of us here at Dispatches from the Forest want to wish you the happiest of whatever holiday you celebrate this time of year. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.